There's a guy named Jonathan Haig, and he has a very interesting exercise he does with people. He says, imagine on the day that you entered this world, the day that you were born, someone had the ability to look over the course of your life and could see what would transpire in your whole life. Imagine they were given the script of your existence and were handed an eraser so they could edit it. The script says that you will make a wonderful circle of friends, but one of those friends will die of cancer. Then after high school, when you actually get into college, the college that you wanted to go to, while you're there, there will be a terrible car crash, and you'll lose a leg because of that crash and go through a very hard depression. A few years later, you'll get a great job, the career that you always wanted, and then later on, you will lose that job in an economic downturn. And after a while, you'll get married. But then you will go later on through the grief of separation and finally divorce. So someone gets the script for your life, and they have five minutes to edit out on that very first day of your life. Here's the question. What would you have them erase? You know, it goes without saying, obviously, that Robin and I, we have one day in our life, just one day, that we would erase. This coming Wednesday will be one year, and I want to talk to you about one year later. It came without warning, but I want to tell you that it has left its mark on our life with a ferocity and brutality that I really can't put into words. When we lost Olivia, we entered a way of life, and I want to say that again, a way of life, a broken path That very often leads to dead ends and dark alleyways and deep depression. I would love to tell you a year later that we are nearing the end of that path, but the truth is we are far from it. In many ways, it feels like we're actually just starting out. The initial shock is not as intense, but I want to tell you everything else is. The reminders, the quietness, the questions, the doubts, the anger, the sadness... The frustration. I described this journey one time to you as being dropped into a hole. And being told that you can be free again if you could just climb out of that hole toward the light. And here's the weirdest thing about it. The greatest enemy that you face in these times is not loneliness or sadness or even grief. Although those things are very difficult. The greatest enemy that you face, in my opinion is the enemy of your mind. I'd like to talk to you about this for a moment. When you find yourself in a hole of darkness, it is scary what your mind is capable of. Now what I'm going to do here in just a moment is be real honest with you because if you can't handle this, you to email me and let me know and I'll pray for you. Actually, I probably won't, but I'll at least tell you I will. When a crisis strikes you, there are some things that happen in your mind. The first thing that happened, at least to me, is doubt and skepticism about the reality of God and the existence of a spiritual world outside of yourself will start to form. I have never wrestled with doubt and uncertainty more than I have in the last 12 months of my life. And here's the deal, and I'm just going to be honest. I say all the right things. 
I teach all the right things. At least I hope I do. I read all the right things. But there are moments, friend, when I don't even know I believe them anymore. Now, if that bothers you, if that concerns you, again, pray for me. But your mind is capable of a lot of things when crisis strikes. The second thing is that anger and revenge will dominate your life. Especially when you're alone and you're isolated. As a pastor, I would be ashamed to tell you the kinds of thoughts I've had. The level of anger and revenge that has gripped me. And what's really, really bizarre about it is that on one hand, these kinds of thoughts empower you. They make you feel justified. And they they even, in a way, in a weirdly sick way, they comfort you. But on the other hand, they leave you very frustrated and very dissatisfied knowing that you can't, or at least you shouldn't act with retribution. The third thing about your mind is that depression and grief, when they invade your life, they do it without warning or they do it without invitation. It's so amazing how you can be going through a day, just a normal day, and things seem seem to be pretty good. And you always walk around, you know, when you go through a crisis or tragedy with some level of sadness and grief. But then there's those moments when it just kind of falls on you like a blanket. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like mentally and emotionally and even physically. I remember being in a, in a planning meeting for church uh, just a few months ago. And everything was fine and we were kind of laughing and joking. And then it was like just just wave came on me and I completely checked out. Gone. Dozens of times it happens. And the only thing I've found and what I would say to you so you're not totally depressed this morning is the best thing you can do is to embrace those moments and to acknowledge them and to try not to avoid them completely and say, well, let me just stay busy. Because it leads to to something good. And that's the fourth thing. In the oddest and strangest of ways, gratitude and joy has been so magnified in my life because you look around and you see the blessing of people. In the strangest of ways, I have been overwhelmed at the sense of gratitude and joy I have sensed. Robin and I, we've experienced the pinnacle of friendship. We have experienced the depth of community. Because in the midst of our hole, people have decided to climb down in that hole with us. And it brings me to one central thought that I want to share about this past year. Is it possible that in some way, people can actually grow from, in some strange way, even need adversity and crisis and difficulty to reach the fullest level of humanity? I've really been wrestling with this. There's some scriptures that really tick me off lately. I'm going to tell you a few of them. James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials 
of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. And then Peter, he comes up with this great concept, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And then Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians. Fire life and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. <laughs> really? Listen, nobody in this room is going to seek out tragedy. I understand that. But you will have to decide what you believe about this. You will have to decide how it's going to shape you. Over the last few months, I've been drawn back to a character in Scripture. Always been one of my favorite characters, and now even more so. His name is Joseph. I resonate with Joseph so much. I'd like to just walk through some of these moments in hopes that we can kind of sense some purpose or point in any of our crisis moments. You know, when we first meet Joseph in Scripture, the crisis has not hit yet. Things are going pretty well. In fact, Genesis says Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about his brothers. You ever heard a kid doing that to his brothers? Now, we don't know what was going on. We don't even know, listen, if it was totally true or if he made up some of this stuff. It's kind of ambiguous. But then it says this. But Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. See, Joseph is the number one son of the number one wife. (laughs) He's his daddy's boy. When he walks in the room, Jacob's eyes light up. And his dad gives him a coat. You know about this coat. You remember the old King James says it's the coat of what? Many colors. Dolly Parton wrote a song about it. And it just kills his brothers. Because he's got the world by the tail. The Bible says he's impressive. In fact, it says Joseph was well built and a handsome man. Very talented. Very ambitious. He had a problem. And anytime he had a problem, he could always run to daddy. Think about this. He's 17 years old. Listen, do you remember when you were 17? Do you remember how stupid you were? Really? He had everything going for him. It is summertime. Living is easy. The fish are jumping. The cotton is high. Daddy's rich. Mama's good looking. There's just one little problem. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And it seems like Joseph was a little slow picking up on this because he actually told them one day about a dream he had. And in that dream, it indicated that they would one day bow down and they would, uh, he would rule over them, his brothers. And finally, they couldn't take it anymore. And one day they got him off by himself and they kidnapped him. They stripped him of his coat. Listen, and they threw him in the hole. They cover his coat with animal blood. They show it to the dad. Joseph is dead. And they sell him in a caravan. He's taken down to Egypt and he's sold into slavery. Literally overnight, Joseph finds himself in the hole. He's lost everything. You name it, he's lost it. 
Before this, if he had a problem, he'd just call daddy and daddy would bail him out. Daddy's not around. Before this, if you'd ask him, he would have said, oh, things are perfect. Things are great. They couldn't be any better. I'm the number one son of the number one wife. If you just said, what about your dreams and your hopes and your ambitions? Hey, man, I'm a dreamer. Remember that, that, that dream about the sun and the moon and the stars and how one day they're going to, you know, bow down at my feet? And now what's his dream? What happens to Joseph is what happens to every person at some point in their life. Here's what we do. We live in this area of life that we call normal. Where circumstances are going pretty good, about as good as we can expect. And we begin to live. We live with this illusion, this security, or our health, or our abilities, or identity, or our education, or our resume, or our wits about us. You know, I have perfects, and I'm going to achieve more. And I'm going to do more stuff today, and more stuff even after that tomorrow. Until one day, all of these illusions are revealed as illusions. Now, you name it. It could be a financial crash. It could be a loss of a job. It could be a divorce. Maybe somebody you love is lost. You go to the doctor's office, and the body that you've just kind of taken for granted for 30, 40, 50, 60 years is now malignant. There's a scandal. You lose your reputation. Your son or daughter rejects the road that you wanted them to go down. And when a crisis comes, here's what happens. You feel like you're in the hole. Now here's what happens reflexively. I promise you. One of the first things you ask yourself is, why me? Question number one. I'm going to tell you, this is a complicated question, friends. And the short answer to this is you usually don't ever get a satisfying explanation. What you usually are left with is stuff like this. What if this had happened? Or what if something had gone differently? Or what if I had made a different choice? Or what if somebody else had made a different choice? And it always brings you back to this, why me? I mean, you look at Joseph, pick any answer. It could be his brother's fault, they were jealous, they hated him. It could be his own fault. Maybe he reveled in his favoritism too much. Maybe it was his dad's fault. He seemed to be kind of insensitive to the whole favoritism thing. I mean, it could be even society's fault. I mean, come on. Really? Selling people into slavery? Why me? Most of the time, you don't ever know. Here's another question. We don't ever ask it, but we could ask it this way is, why not me? You know, it's weird. I look at the world now so differently. All the pain, all the suffering, all the hardship. How would I expect anything different? Why not me? I mean, I'm not immune from crisis or suffering. Millions of people. I mean, millions before me, millions that will come after me have encountered hardship and grief and tragedy. But then you get to the last question. (laughs) And that is what's left. Like, what do you do now? What, what happens when you thought you had a belief system and you thought you had a pretty good grip on your faith and you thought you had a pretty good grip on your family and you thought you had a pretty good grip on your finances and you thought you had a pretty good grip on your future? What do you got? 
The strange thing happens to Joseph. He gets sold to a guy named Potiphar. He wakes up. This is his new reality. Nobody cares that he was the favorite. Nobody cares that he had dreams. Nobody cares that he comes from good stock. He's an alien, a stranger. He is penniless and powerless. What in the world does he have left? Now listen, he's got one thing. It's the only thing that Scripture mentions. The Scriptures say the Lord was with Joseph and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. (laughs) He's in a hole, but he finds out, crazy as it may seem, that he's not in the hole by himself. What that must have been like to his soul to wake up and to have lost everything in his life except for God. Now, because the Lord is with him, he's not going to have any more problems, right? I mean, everything's going to work out great in Potiphar's house. He's going to get along great with Mrs. Potiphar. (laughs) You know the story, right? Most of you know the story. He honors God. He resists her advances and temptation. But he ends up in prison through an act of deception. And she lies about it. And now he goes through injustice. And he ends up back in the hole. (laughs) And the strangest things happen again. Scripture says, but while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. Joseph just keeps falling and falling and falling. And he keeps falling into the arms of God. I think of Joseph and it reminds me of a woman named Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a southern belle. She lived a pretty charmed life. She fell in love and she got married to a guy named Richard. Uh, She was a psychologist by trade and he was a young assistant district attorney. (laughs) Until that point in her life, about the hardest thing Elizabeth ever had to do was fix a broken nail. But storms have a way. They have a way. Richard and Elizabeth were married. They wanted to have kids, but there were problems. They walked for years through two miscarriages. All the pain of looking at people, you know, with baby strollers, hearing other people complain about the lack of sleep, wishing that their little cries would wake them up at night. Finally, Elizabeth was diagnosed with a condition that was surgically treatable, and she eventually got pregnant with their first little girl. Now by this time they had kind of reached the point in life where they thought it was better not to have any more kids. So Richard went through the appropriate surgical procedure, which considering the gas thing, I think served him right. And then the next month, Richard was riding on the property and he gets thrown from the horse that he's riding and he's unconscious. When he wakes up, he walks inside the house, calls the doctor They took him in, did some x-rays, said he was fine, sent him home. But the pain was so bad that three days later he went to a specialist. The doctor says, don't move, don't breathe, don't do anything. They flew him to a surgeon. And Richard said to the surgeon, you're an expert at this, right? And the surgeon said, buddy, nobody's an expert at this. (laughs) He told him if you had as much as sneezed or coughed the wrong way, you could be a quadriplegic or dead. They did surgery. 
They put in some plates. It was a huge success. And with all this stuff going on, they never did check to make sure that that little surgical procedure had been effective. And the next month, Elizabeth and Richard found out that they were going to have another child. Massive cognitive defects. Their friends didn't know what to say. Some who went to their church said, you know, your baby's going to be healed. God's told us. You just have to have faith. You'll see. But the baby was not healed. Another person said, people around you will be watching, so don't grieve. Don't look sad. Show people how strong your faith is. But they were sad. Another person actually said to them, God must love you very much to give you a retarded child. Can't even imagine what that did. But if they were here, they would tell you that what that little baby, when it arrived, it was precious to them. They would tell you that they have become more patient and more compassionate people. And they would tell you that they would trade that growth in a heartbeat if the health and the wholeness of that little baby could be restored. You see, friends, loss is not something that you get over. And I'm not here today to tell you that if something happens to you that's bad, you just get right back up and you be as happy as you can be. Loss is something that has to be set right. It needs to be redeemed. And the Bible says that someday, someday God will do that. And between that day and that day, the strangest thing happens. Somehow God is in the hole. So today the last question is this. Does God really care? Some people are thinkers, some people are feelers. Nothing wrong with that, it's just the way you are. Some people are just real compassionate and emotive and empathetic. And some people are just cold calculating machines. (laughs) Joseph is 17 years old. And he goes through all these holes. Now I want you to guess... Which one do you think Joseph is? Thinker or feeler? Genesis 42 says, When he sees his brother for the first time in 20 years, Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. But then he turned back and spoke to them. One chapter later, it says, It was so overwhelming to him, Joseph runs out and looks for a place to weep. He went to his private room and wept there. Then when he is reconciled with his brothers, it says Joseph threw his arms around Benjamin and wept. He kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Later on, he sees his father for the very last time. And it says, and as soon as Joseph appeared before his father, he threw his arms around him and wept a long time. Friends, there's a lot of tears in scripture. And this guy owns a lot of them. And I wondered, when Joseph got to the end of his life, And you said, hey, Joe, when did you grow the most? When did you start to kind of get over yourself and how good you thought you were? When did you get some steel down on the inside of your gut? When do you remember God being nearest to you? I wonder if he would have said, it was in the hole. It was when I was in prison or a slave or laying in a pit. Does God care? It's a crazy thing about Jesus. 
Shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. It's because his friend Lazarus dies. In Jesus, we have a God who cries. I don't know any other system in the world that tells us that. When people go to counseling, to school to be counselors and to learn how to do counseling, they'll tell them this, and when you're going to have an office one day, um, people are going to get emotional, so you need to keep a box of Kleenex there. And it's very interesting. They always kind of explain it to them. It says, make sure you have something there so they can wipe the tears. But they don't ever actually tell people, now listen, as a counselor, you need to reach over and wipe the tears from their eyes. And there's a reason for that. Because to wipe the tears from somebody's face is a very, very intimate thing. I think about it. I think about maybe only a parent doing it with their child. I want you to listen to this and we'll close with this. I love the way the writer put it. It says, the day is coming when God's dwelling place will now be among his people and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Listen to this. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Wow. I don't know if you're in the hole. I don't know which question you're asking. You know, why me? Why not me? What's left? Or does God care? I want you to know he was there for Joseph. He's been there for us. And I'm pretty sure that if we'll let him, he'll be there for us in the days ahead. So this morning, if you'd like prayer, I'd like to pray a prayer for you. If you just kind of be respectful of people around you, maybe bow your head and just kind of be alone with God for a moment. nothing left you cried all the tears you can cry you've gotten as angry as you can get depressed as you can get you better decide will you look around and see if he's there my father I don't know what the next year has in store for us I'm sure like most things in life, it'll be up and it'll be down. It'll be some really, really joyful things and some tough things. I don't know if crisis or tragedy will visit anyone in this room. But I know this. How we respond in that point and at that point will be so huge. If we can just be real about it, if we can just be authentic about it, if we can just be like Joseph and lean into it, maybe we'll see you around. Maybe we'll notice that in the hole, there's God. 
I pray now for every single person that hears these words. Maybe they're going through divorce, a heartbrokenness that has just, just absolutely wrenched their heart. Maybe they're going through financial crisis. Maybe it's as bad as they could possibly imagine. Maybe they're going through a physical health issue that is just so debilitating. I pray they would look and they would hear God say, I'm here. Nothing else. Just I'm here. Still here. You come close to him. You wipe that tear from their eye. 